This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Mike Ballingham, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 239, brought to you in association with Smart and EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Aaron Brown, CEO and co-founder of UK-based FinTech payments firm Patrix, to talk about payments curation, whatever that is. It seems like only last year, as it was, that we were talking about payments orchestration being the be-all and end-all of coordinating payments. But I guess last year is old hat. And the idea that something has replaced last year's amazing fashion might sound rather hypey, markety, and believe me, I get hundreds of emails like that, apart from the fact that A, Aaron has an impressive career in fintech and payments, so should know a thing or two, and also in passing, curation is the thing that enabled Patrix to recently raise a Series A, 18 million bucks in a tough market, so he must have convinced other people as well as me, and B, It seems to make sense to me, as my weak memory remembers only three words, which is, roughly speaking, one-stop shop. The blurb says, more detailed than three words, through one platform, one contract, and one API, Patrix Payments Curation Solution provides access to the best payment infrastructure around the world, that sounds nice, reducing the inefficiency, cost, and complexity of international payments. In contrast, existing international payment solutions, brackets orchestration brackets, typically require businesses to source, negotiate, and maintain a minimum of 10 to 15 partners, contracts, and APIs. So, to cut a long story short, curation seems to be just the thing for lazy devs who have to do a payment, because you use one API, and your business folk didn't have to go around and do all these contracting things. So, curation sounds like a thing, and as my tech bugbear is that tech gets more and more like a stack of Jenga bricks piled upon each other, and often collapsing in a higgledy-piggledy mess. A simplifying interface for anything is just the kind of thing that markets always need to be able to focus more on the customer-facing world than its internally-facing pile of Jenga bricks. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Aaron. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So, in terms of something human being to kick off the show with, you were saying you recently... I was about to say we're on holiday, but it depends upon the age of your children. I remember someone telling me when I had young kids, I said, oh, you've been on holiday? He said, no, we just had time abroad with the children. Because <laughs> they were, I don't know, quite sort of young, and I don't know, one was in the cot and, and all that kind of stuff. So, yes, uh, parents will recognise that. So were you actually on holiday, or were you spending time with the children? I think it depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> but I have, a, I have a four-year-old, a six-year-old, and a 13-year-old, so... It's always a careful balance when it's um, school holidays as to how we uh, how we fill the time for for six weeks. So we always do the same. We actually go to Mallorca, we rent a villa, we throw the kids in the pool and do beach days. And me and my wife try uh, um, as much as possible to uh, allocate time to work and allocate time to the kids. And then we rope in the parents, which we've been pretty successful at. So I, I guess combination of uh, of holiday and, and and work, but we're. Uh, Back in the saddle now, and nice to uh, to be back in London and, and see the office full again. 
Yes, so if, one, if one's always at work. <laughs> and it's quite nice to see the kids, but then both for the parents and for the children. <laughs> it's also quite nice when the new school term comes along and they can hang out with their mates rather than their parents and, and the parents can actually get something done. And I think in terms of your scatter, you're obviously beyond the sort of, you know, push chairs and nappies and all that kind of stuff, which is a hell of a, 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 a superstructure. But more importantly, you still, I would imagine, at that stage, got that enormously binding device of the swimming pool, which I, I remember that, you know, there's a certain range of ages that children will be happy to spend infinite number of hours just messing around in the water. And then they start to get grown up. I've forgotten what kind of age it is. And I know if you've got girls, for the sake of argument, they don't want to get their hair wet because they've got to dry it and, uh, and all this kind of stuff. And then once one of your children has moved out of the segment of wanting to sort of stay in water for hours, it gets a little bit more challenging. But in the meantime, it's sort of a heaven-sent thing, a pool. No, for, for, for sure. It's either option A, stay in the UK and uh, drive everyone, everyone mad in the same household or get yourself in a villa with a pool and try and find a way to entertain three kids. A 13-year-old obviously has much different interests than the, uh, than the younger two, but it was uh, we do it every year and it works really well. So we're excited. Excellent. Well, I always like to hear positive use cases of technology enabling people to work from all over the place. I mean, it's, it's a sort of delicate balance, really, um, in that I think one can do too much or too little. I mean, I've got pretty lazy and also been recording quite a few podcasts recently. So I just sort of sit at home. But you sit at home, then it doesn't take, take you that long, especially after the lockdown, you have to have told yourself all the jokes you know and actually not hear any more jokes from anybody else, actually. So at which point you feel like, I wish I had an office to go into. <laughs> Um, anyway, yeah. so moving on to yeah. offices, maybe you'd like to give the listeners a brief understanding of your career journey through offices and, and what kind of offices and, and what kind of things you were doing in those offices that led you to your greatest incarnation yet, which is uh, no doubt Patrix. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I actually left school when I was uh, 16. And uh, so when you leave school at 16, there's not that many office jobs available. But um, I, I chose to... Uh, following some family footstep and joined the uh, the Royal Marines, um, which I lasted all of three days in, um, which included the uh, the travel time down to Plymouth and back. <laughs> um, and, I, and I still remember at the time there was a there was a headline that 99.9% of people need not apply. And I can confirm that is definitely true. So um, after kind of fumbling around trying to find something to do. When I was 18, I came across a, a role at TravelX, um, which was a trainee role in the sales team, you know, busting out 150 calls a day to SMEs up and down the UK that had some form of foreign exchange exposure. And during the six years I was there, I worked my way up to uh, running one of, one of the largest uh, divisions, which was their enterprise business in Europe. And um, stayed at, stayed in TravelX until the sale with uh, with Western Union Business Solutions. Left with the CEO at that time to join Skrill, um, which was a hugely popular payments platform in the gaming and forex space. Pre-sale to uh, which year are we roughly talking? Two thousand and fourteen. Yeah, joined uh, joined Skrill, which which then became uh, optimal through uh, through an acquisition, and then um, did a bit of work in the UK um, with FC Exchange and Global Reach, bringing those two businesses together. Before I joined Hyperwallet, um, and I was the first employee in Hyperwallet, building out their European business pre-sale to PayPal, and that was really focused on marketplaces generally, which was my first exposure to. 
a key segment and vertical at, at, at Patrix, where I am now. And after the uh, the sale to, to PayPal, I became CEO of Exaris, which is a virtual card issuance platform, which recently was sold to Neom. Possibly the, the worst time to be in a 100% travel-focused business as COVID arrives. And so throughout COVID, worked with a number of payment platforms, including um, MoneyCorp, it being probably the most well-known one, and involving their strategy around global payments. Um, before we launched Patrix with my co-founder, Eddie Harrison, about a, about 18 months ago, was kind of the, the previous uh, businesses that, 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 I, that I'd been in prior to, to setting up Patrix. Excellent. So, uh, as I said in my uh, in- introduction, you know a little bit about payments and more than a thing or two. And interesting, talking about starting on the sort of the shop floor with a broom, as it were, and then taking the journey from there to, to CEO. I think that there are two ways of approaching business, one of which is the, the bottom up, literally, in this case, where this is the great advantage of understanding absolutely everything because you, you've lived it. You've, you've woken up in the night thinking about it or thought about it on the way in or out of the, the office. And I think it gives a really solid grounding. And in terms of the sort of centuries past, that's how everybody would have learnt anything, really. If you were a butcher, a baker or a candlestick maker, you'd start by sweeping the floor and then, you know, eventually be a master butcher, baker or candlestick maker. And the opposite approach, of course, is the, the people who sort of, for the sake of argument, have lots of educations and then go and do an MBA straight off to university and go and become a management consultant or something like that where they have a lot of sort of theory and a lot of ideas and, you know, a lot of sort of top down stuff. And the challenge with that is that often the ideas might, might be great. But there is this sort of curious gap, which I'm always fascinated by. I mean, particularly in MotoGP, you see it quite a lot with sort of parts upgrades to bikes, Formula One's the same thing, is that ideas and reality are always quite hard to, to mix in the middle, actually. And you probably notice this wearing your CEO hat a few times, which is that, you know, the, the board may agree a strategy which sounds wonderful, but strategy is a sort of bunch of words on a piece of paper, and actually making it happen, there's there's a real art to it. Yeah, I, I think I think both ways work, and I actually have some friends that do an MBA. I think the difficulty, and for me in particular, is I have one issue in life, which is the concept of time, and I just don't, I just don't think I would go and have the time to go and do an MBA and be devoted to it, and to take that route that you know, arguably just takes a lot longer. I'm much more of the mindset that I know what I want to do and once you know, just soldier on and get it done. Yes, yes. I mean, the people I know who've done uh, MBAs and say it was worthwhile, which certainly isn't all of them, uh, are people where they used it to make a strategic shift in career direction from, you know, doing X to, to doing Y, which wasn't particularly connected and they grew a network and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it's certainly a minority, but it's just interesting that I think as a generalisation, CEOs that have done everything starting at the bottom often can be better uh, at execution in the same way that if you're a CEO and you've founded a company and it was you and one man and a dog in a pub one night and then you eventually become a FTSE or something, you'll really understand the the whole growth process. Right, okay, so all of that has set you up nicely to have to be (laughs) eloquent, fluent and know absolutely everything about um, payments. So you've set yourself a high, high bar to jump over in terms of the song and dance. That is the main course. So I wasn't being too sarcastic in my introduction, but having done the podcast for, for a decade and having getting thousands of emails per annum, not half of which, but I exaggerate, but you know what I mean, half of which have got the 
the latest, greatest thing, which is better than sliced bread, etc., etc., etc. I do get a bit jaundiced. <laughs> and when we had a pod prep, it wasn't that I didn't trust what you said, but uh, I took a little bit of convincing. Anyway, maybe for those people who don't live in the, the payments silo, which is perhaps the majority of the audience, because the majority of audience don't live in any particular FS silo, maybe you just give us a little sort of thumbnail sketch of the payments you know, and technology in sort of, say, say this century, and, and how it got to the stage where people create, came up with orchestration last year, which sort of solved certain issues, and now you're coming up with curation. Maybe just give us the trajectory, and then we'll get into the challenges and opportunities and, and why nobody either thought of, going back to management consultancy things, or actually did, going back to executiony things, the whole um, curation thing before. But let's just go back to the background. I mean, what was the setting 18 months ago when you and your buddy went... I know what will form curation. And he says to you, what's that then? Yeah, so, so I, I think we, we think about it in, in three different ways. So kind of rewind time, there was lots of different parts of the payment ecosystem. You'd have card acquirers, you'd have open banking platforms, you'd have card issuers, you'd have PayPal and other alternate payment methods, etc. And merchants, clients, so you know, popular marketplaces, out there would go and connect to each individual provider to get the service that they need and, and that was all fine but there was there certainly was a, a point in time probably two years ago where orchestration started to come through which was essentially making the cto's life easier by having a concept of bringing in all of those different players into one api so rather than connecting to a primary and a secondary acquirer and multiple different alternate payment methods and other fintech. The role of the orchestration provider is, hey, come to me, connect to my API, and then we'll do all the plumbing in the back, which if you're a CTO is is perfect. And actually the orchestration layers in the small to medium-sized market and probably retail as a vertical actually has had really good success because in the smaller end of the, the market, you're not blessed with you know, a hundred person engineering team to go and figure out the complexities of payments. Having said that, the kind of tier two marketplaces, which is a primary target for um, for Patrix, they're already of a of a decent size. They already have hundreds of millions of volume, but they're probably three to five years away from working with a with a tier one bank. And so the larger end of the market needs more than orchestration. They need, a, they need a business that has the ability to be regulated, to be able to hold their funds, to almost act as a single source of settlement. And one of the differences between curation and orchestration is by being the regulated entity and that single source of settlement, we're able to build up really big economies of scale, which we share with all of our customers. Whereas in the orchestration scenario, each customer is treated individually because when you connect to the orchestration platform, you then need to negotiate your commercials with each underlying payment partner. That's not the purpose of curation. The purpose of curation is you send your money to Patrix. We're regulated in the UK. Soon we'll be in, in Europe. We'll hold your money and we'll disperse those to the relevant partners. And we work with multiple Tier one banks, local banks, car teams to be able to move money much more efficiently. Right. Okay. So that's nice and clear. And I think I hadn't particularly um, in my massively in-depth research picked up the fact that the curation is a, involves a principal rather than a, a, an agent relationship. 
And there's obviously quite a lot in this, in this model when we drill into it, which we'll come on to. But one question is always interesting in this context, whatever one's talking about in any part of technology, which is that when you and your buddy woke up 18 months ago and thought, we'll do curation, going back to this point about ideas and execution and stuff like that, and you say that not many people are doing it, what was it that meant that nobody had done it a year earlier or five years earlier or, or, or something like that? What was it that made it possible 18 months ago to start doing this? Was it literally that, oh, no one actually thought of that and, and now everyone's going to copy you because they go, oh, blimey, I wish we'd thought of that. We're going to do that as well. Was it literally that the idea hadn't been thought of or was it that there was a sort of conjunction of planets and stars and it all lined up and, and suddenly somehow it became possible? Or was it entrepreneurial genius that means that actually you can, you can do something or a combination of all the above? What was it that made it all start then and, and not five years earlier, for the sake of argument? I mean, it, the idea did start in a, in a pub, Mike, to your earlier point, just, just without the dog. But I don't, think the, I don't think it was a case that the idea had never been thought about, but I think it's intentional for businesses to take a slightly easier route, which is not to be regulated. And I think marrying the tier one banks and tier one regulators is not a, an easy step for, for lots of reasons, not, not least because to get uh, regulated, you need a very high caliber team with lots of experience, particularly if you're looking at a tier one regulator, such as the Bank of Ireland, which is the route that we went. There are other jurisdictions that are significantly easier, but you're just not taken as seriously or credible by the tier one banks. And, and I guess kind of another strand to that is you're not taken seriously by the tier one regulators or the tier one banks if you don't have tier one investors. And so we were very lucky early on to have Bain Capital come in at a very unusual stage for them as a fund and to have very strong industry angels that have invested in the business. And then, as you, as you pointed out earlier, not only did Bain co-lead our Series A, it was also participated by unusual ventures in Moton. So I think for us, it's like taking everything we do with a tier one approach and and, and that has been difficult and, and there's certain parts of our journey that aren't as complete. So, for example, you know, we're very close with the Central Bank of Ireland, but it's it's not done. Whereas the FCA is done, we are regulated as an EMI. And it, and it takes a long time to navigate the tier one banks in building those relationships. And generally speaking, unless you have multiple billions of volume, the banks aren't even interested. So unless you can navigate the bank and have existing relationships where you've proven yourself in the past, you know, not, not just me as a CEO, but more broadly as the team, it, it's really difficult to even start the relationship, to be honest. Yes, I see. So it's the kind of thing where you really have to sort of bootstrap yourself, Indian rope trick yourself, insert another half a dozen metaphors, and be able to, a bit like... Was it Athena? She emerged from the sea as a fully clad warrior <laughs> as her birth. Uh, you have to suddenly become, quotes on day one, putting it crudely, tier one industrial standard, which uh, ain't an easy trick, um, as you uh, described, for multiple directions, which means that the barriers to entry to, the, to, to doing this are, are highly significant com compared to the average fintech, should we say, that's been on the show over the last decade, where they started pretty small and got a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. Um, you, you can't sort of, um, you can't start off by being a tier 10, a tier 9, a tier 8 and all that kind of stuff if you're doing 
um, what you're doing so I can see that it's sort of the credibility and knowing how to do it that enables you to do that. So looking at the curation model in a little bit more detail and, and lifting the hood up on it as it were having described it as a motor car the money flows uh, going back to things like Hirschstadt risk back in the day which was or back in the day it was a credit thing where I've forgotten what it was something like Hirschstadt bank collapsed at whatever four o'clock in the afternoon and funds are coming at two o'clock and they never sent them out at six it was, it was this kind of sort of slight timing thing intraday if I'm a any kind of entity and I'm dealing through you what is my credit risk is it on Patrix? Is it on, for the sake of argument, you keep all your money with an account of Barclays? Is it on, on Barclays? So what is the actual you know, credit risk on, on dealing with you as a principal? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it depends on your definition of, of, of risk. But we, we're, let's just take where we are right now today on the you know, 12th of September, regulated by the, by the UK. So we are issued safeguarded accounts by our tier one bank partners. That's where the funds are held. We have an obligation to to keep client money safe and outside of our operational accounts. There is only one step between us in in clearing the transaction, and I think that's quite a unique part of Patrick. So we don't work in the in the UK where we're regulated. We don't work with other fintech partners, so we are directly connected through one tier one bank in the UK to clear the transaction. So. Money comes into us, we safeguard them. When we receive the instruction, the money goes through the tier one bank to be cleared. So there's no um, multiple fintechs involved in moving that transaction where arguably you could say, well, I settled to Patrix, Patrix settled to part number one, who used partner number two, who then used a bank. There's a lot more risk involved in that chain. And one of the commitments that we made to investors is wherever we're regulated will only ever be one step removed from the transaction. Yes, yeah, so as an, as an EMI, for the listeners who have forgotten, because it's a few years since we did an EMI, as an EMI, you don't, as it were, have a, a little sort of um, petty cash box uh, with a sort of one lock on in your office where the money comes in, you know, one minute and then half an hour later it goes out uh, out of the same box. So the, the money actually goes into and out of, as you say, tier one banks rather than through your hands. Is that right? Correct. Good. And I think that, um, you know, in, in, in hearing you talk about this and the sort of the settlements, the angle uh, and all that, you remind me quite a lot of Clearbank who were on the show a few years ago when they were getting going and they had suddenly had to spring out of the water fully clad as a sort of uh, a, a tier one counterparty, the, the, the first clearing bank in the UK for several centuries. So what would the difference be between a clearing bank and a payments curation such as Patrix? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the clearing banks, whether it be Clearbank or, or others, um, obviously are regulated in a, in, a, in a slightly different way to, to Patrix being you know, officially a bank. Um, which which we are not. Um, I think the clearing banks are very focused on um, receiving funds, uh, deposits, some limited FX capability, um, and payout functionality. Curation layer really sets upon consuming some of those services, but going one step further to consolidating everything that's coming in. So some of that could be car transactions, the piece in the middle where we're allowing marketplaces to hold money in multiple different currencies, but then other alternate payment methods in, in settling to businesses and consumers, which is typically very different to a traditional clearing bank. Right, I see. So I've got an idea of that. And if we were doing this in a, in a meeting room or on YouTube or something with a, with a whiteboard, we would have drawn a few lines and, and rectangles by now. And that bit would be clear. I think that if I have a, a nightmare in the middle of a 
middle of the night. Well, I guess you won't have it in the middle of the night. You don't have nightmares during the day, I guess. They're a different type of nightmare. But if I have a nightmare tonight and I'm sitting down in some exam hall and I, I, my, the question is, <laughs> writing on one side of the paper, giving me three pages on the difference between a, a clearing bank and um, a curation, uh, I think I'd start breaking out into a sweat. And I think it's about a short waffling paragraph for me as an introduction. It's probably all I can I get, get to and then I sort of wake up. So maybe we'll just tackle it from the other way around, which is that if we sort of focus on Patrix, what are the essential things that you're, you're focusing on? Uh, having sort of asked you, you know, how do you differ from a, a clearer in terms of being principal and doing settlements and, and all these kind of things? So, yeah, so what's the sort of the basic thing that you're really trying to do yeah, I mean, we when, when we started out, you know, thinking what Patriots could be, where, you know, where was there a gap in the market, and and where do we think we could we could play? But there was two kind of core theses that came back, and we validated these with fifteen of um, the top marketplaces globally. Two things came back. One was that payouts are still very fragmented, even when you're dealing with tier one banks, they don't have the full coverage. And payouts meaning? So it could be payouts to, to businesses globally for settling invoices. It could be um, salaries being paid internationally. But you're, you're seeing organizations having to work with multiple platforms. So D-Local, for example, is very popular in LATAM. AirWallet is very popular in, in Asia. But for a business that's rapidly growing globally and wants access to local payment methods, wants access to local banking um, as a service in each of those markets, it's it's really limited. And so we set out to primarily work with tier one banks to do that. But where there are gaps, we're working with localized providers to be able to bridge that gap so that through one API, people really can have a truly global access to be able to clear funds. The second, actually, interestingly, is the reverse problem in that as marketplaces and online platforms globalize their business, they may today could be somebody in France working with BMP and the payments team say, hey, we're going to go and launch in Japan or Thailand. How do you find a bank in that local market? Because if you're not big enough to deal with the really big tier one banks, then you really have to go and find somebody that allows you to collect funds in each of those markets. You don't have an entity in those markets. And so how do you really address the challenge of building out that payment ecosystem that's right for the marketplace? And so really what Patrix has set out to do is to fold those two major thesis points into one platform. And we're laser focused on those on those two areas. We don't intend on branching out anytime soon to be a card acquirer or to go and build an open banking platform. You know, there's, there's many good uh, platforms out there. Um, that are doing that already and, and we intend to work with those over time but right now we're laser focused on the two two challenges which is allowing global businesses to collect funds where they're not locally in in that market and then also having access to pay out locally and access to real-time clearing etc in multiple markets i see so if the london fintech podcast uh, gets round to uh, selling hoodies around the world um, then i well, maybe I'm not tier one, but I will be at this current rate of success, I'm sure. You know, I'm, I'm a tier one podcast um, and I'm selling hoodies all around the world. And I go, oh, God, hang on. How do I get the money? Because people keep sending me checks in the post and I can't cash all these funny foreign checks. And I don't know about electrons and all that kind of stuff. 
then I give you guys a call and then going back to the contractual piece of this which I mentioned in the introduction from uh, your, your website blurb back in the day before curation you'd have to negotiate all of these contracts with people in people or banks in Thailand or payment agencies or whatever or banks in Japan and this kind of thing and that's a hell of a, a legal overhead whereas presumably the contractual the sort of legally angle is, is more straightforward because I only need to get my lawyer to look at me contract with you because then you sort everything else out is that correct yeah it, it's in the same way as the the technical challenges are, are solved through curation the legal challenges are, are solved as as well in, in that you know it depends on the market whether it's some, somewhere where we're licensed directly or whether we're working with a with a, a tier one partner which we do in, in in some markets but um largely everything is is set up for marketplaces and platforms to deal as seamlessly as possible excellent well the other point that i referenced as to why hasn't this been done before was the execution one and you've spoken about the the regulatory angle having to need tough permissions the the client angle which is that uh, tier one banks only want to deal with quotes really grown up businesses rather than a, a fintech formed in a pub yesterday uh, or be in, in your case um, you're very good at uh, bootstrapping from from pub to um, speaking in a deep voice and, and shaking hands firmly in canary wharf shall we say and then there's also the the, the third angle um, in terms of you've got to actually quotes do all this and wire it together in-house and have lots of people with computers and, and, and all that kind of thing uh, which presumably isn't as simple as it, it doesn't even sound simple actually to me but it isn't even as simple as uh, uh, that so can you give listeners a bit of a feel of scale I mean you know does do you have a super CTO who does it all himself or do you have a sort of thousand devs doing this and it you know it took two years I mean what kind of scale and, and what are the sort of the, some of the key challenges in actually making it happen from an execution perspective yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, we, we do have a super TTO and we have a super VP of engineering and we've got a super 50 plus engineering team that are in, in the background making all of this um, connect. I think, you know, to, to start, I mean, we, we stood up our engineering team, you know, 50 plus engineers in less than nine months. So, you know, the, the ability, if, you, if you're really intentional in the build, that you want to do everything yourself from scratch, which was absolutely our uh, our desire. And you know, we the whole team has been in the, the market long enough that you get people knocking on your door and saying, "Oh, you don't need to go get regulated. We've got a license." Or don't build this front end, just white label ours. But that's not building real enterprise value. That's not what we promised investors. And so we are doing everything from scratch, with a few very small exceptions. For example, our KYC platform. But everything else is proprietary technology. So I think one of the challenges is like how do you how do you build that team in the time that you need? How do you make sure they're successful? And you know we we always push internally. Like you say, you're doing things at pace. How do we quantify pace? How do we know that you're really moving as quickly as what you could be? And I think that's the difficult thing. Like a lot of the stuff with payments is first mover advantage or who's the super fast follower. Uh, and if you're in neither of those two camps, you're likely to fail. Yes, and I assume, assume, emphasised, assume, that given that it's a challenging market for tech at the moment and raising money and all this kind of stuff, that actually it's probably has been more recently a better time to be a buyer of uh, techies than a seller. Yeah, I mean, we, we've been really lucky. We, we've kind of centralised the team where we've found really good back-end engineering in, in, in Poland, really good front-end engineer in, in Portugal, and we've kind of built out the teams in in that way. But, you know, 
in, very, in the very early days, we, we worked with an outsourced tech hub just to kind of get us going. And then we, we bought that in-house and were very focused on making sure, you know, we were a remote first business and we were hiring in multiple locations, but we weren't hiring in 15 different locations where the time zones were a bit crazy and trying to keep everyone together. But it is, it is challenging to, to find them and it's challenging to, to keep people and keep them motivated and, you know, growing grow the business at the, at the pace we, we want. But we've been really fortunate to get a good set of engineers. And, and it goes, you know, more than the engineers as well. The, the rest of the team are 103, 103 people now. And we're, we're just going to pause for the rest of this year and just let that, that set of people just bed in and understand more about the strategy and the business before we, before we then embark on the next phase of recruitment. Yes, I think one of the most remarkable things about this century, and perhaps it's only the last in it, five to ten years maximum, is that huge projects like this can be successful in a relatively short period of time. I was just looking at the date now and thinking, actually, it's probably about 40 years ago I started my first job in a, uh, uh, in a tech firm, and uh, some marketing guy there thought, had the idea of calling it software engineering, because engineering, you know, that sounds good. I mean, it, bridges don't fall down that often or anything like that, as opposed to just sort of writing software where everyone has sort of bugs and problems um, forever, ever more. I think, as I mentioned on the, on the, uh, in a previous podcast, Yonks Ago, the first team I worked with, a couple of guys, supported the Algol 68 compiler. And the, the, the secret there is it's 68, 1968, uh, was Algol 68 and this compiler for, I think, ICL machine. And this was 1983. And they were still fixing bugs in the Algol 68 compiler, uh, which was written oh, over a decade before and coming into FS. Off the top of my head, it doesn't really matter whether you are Kleinwartz with its bank-wide thing, which is a complete disaster, or Lloyd's insurance market with its various disasters last century. Ambition was always there, but uh, execution wasn't. So it's extremely impressive that there are some firms out there that manage to execute some uh, incredibly challenging project. I mean, you've laid it out schematically, but in terms of how hard can it be, harder than it sounds, if anybody wants to go away and copy Patrix, let me know, and you'll, you'll, I'm sure you'll say it's uh, harder than it, it, it sounds. But it is truly impressive that actually projects like that can be done these days. So I think we've, we've covered all this angle. It's really very interesting approach to the whole thing. And as I say, there's a tendency for the world to get more and more complex. But actually, we need to make it simpler in many, many dimensions, not least of which this one. So sounds like an amazing start. What do you foresee the future of this area being? And, um, and then we'll come on at the end to the the future for Patrix specifically. Do you foresee uh, in three, five years' time you're having a dozen competitors around the world because everyone's gone, oh, that's a good idea, let's go and do that? Well, I, I think there's, there's so many things at, at play, right? Because even if you just talked about regulation for, for a second, there is no one global license. Even, even if you're in the US, your license is state by state. There are some hubs globally, but like you would have to be an incredibly well-backed business to be able to go out there and get a license in every market to be able to take curation globally and in order to do that and to raise those funds you also need to show you have the right metrics and, and, a, and a proven business model that you can take into multiple locations and so in the Patrick scenario it's well how successful have we been in the uk and did we lift and drop that into europe and if we did that in europe could we lift and drop that into Canada as, a, as an example. So I think investment in regulation stops people from like instantly waking up and being truly global. And I, and I think the future still has some uncertainties just generally around the, the role of real-time clearing, the role of 
digital currencies, the role, if anything, that crypto plays into the market. It's not a market that, that we focus on. But even 18 months ago, I remember merchants saying, we really want to accept digital currency on our checkout page. And then you fast forward to now, and it's almost a silent market in anything outside of high-risk merchants. So the whole ecosystem changes and the the fintechs that will be successful are the ones that have a solid core, which is exactly where Patrix is now, where you know we're still getting started. We're building the core platform, getting our tier one regulation, the tier one banks to support the offering. So for us, certainly for the next 12, 18 months, it's building a really sustainable business with big volume, with flagship names that allow us to kick into the next phase of our of our journey. And at that point, it, it'll be you know, extending our licensing to be more focused around different payment schemes. So being principal members of Visa, for example, is something that we are pretty focused on for the first half of um, of next year. So there's lots of things that I would say uh, table stakes if you wanted to be considered as a solid payments platform, and then we can branch out into the the weird and wonderful areas as they as as they arise, and that will really be driven by our our customers. Excellent. Well, we've had quite a large uh, main course, so we probably won't need uh, too much dessert uh, in terms of um, uh, crumbles and custard, but we have a lighter dessert. Uh, so before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there and my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Aaron, you've given a, a very clear and compelling understanding and overview of curation. And in terms of the, the future of curation, you've indicated the key factors there, uh, as well as letting us know uh, a little bit about uh, Patrick's approach and plans. So, if there's anything else to add to that, then add it now. Um, otherwise, maybe. Uh, in terms of all those people who are listening to this and, and drooling and wanting to work uh, with Patrix tomorrow uh, or wanted to have you as a, a, a provider, uh, what do you need even more of uh, tomorrow to be bigger and better than you are today? More, more devs in Portugal, Poland, more, more partners in Japan? Where, what, what are your needs? We have plenty of needs. I think right now they're centralised on customers. We have an amazing talent team at Patrix um, that are focused on building out um, our teams by by region. What we really need, and to the extent of the podcast listeners are heads of payments or head of finances, CFOs, or know people in those roles that currently are facing complexities with payments and globalizing their business and, and expanding into new markets. We're regulated in the UK. We will be regulated at some point in, in Europe. And we work with partners that give us access to north of 10 markets globally, including the US. Um, which means you can access our our services um, through the same API. So whether you're a marketplace or a payroll company, pension company, maritime, freelance platform, anything that where you have to work with a card acquirer and need the settlement infrastructure, foreign exchange capability, or access to local payments, then we'd love to hear from you. Excellent. Well, that's been extremely clear and it's been a good example of um, actually quite a few fin- fintechs, funny enough, in 2023 to migrate, surprise, that are leaping forwards from what's already been done in previous decade plus plus by now. So I wish you and Patrix every success in the future. Thanks, Mike.
Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.